Um, Please open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 43 and we'll read from verses 10 to 12 this morning as we begin a new series. Um, And some of you have already had a taste of this series on Wednesday evening. So we'll, uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us in the coming weeks and I pray that you'll be blessed through these coming weeks. Okay, Isaiah chapter 43 verse 10 says, Here are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall thee be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Saviour. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that uh, he be glorified through this message this morning and that he would give us his grace to understand. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your precious word. We pray that we would uh, learn through it this morning, that whatever truths that you have for us, Lord, that our hearts would be open to those truths and that we would learn and grow through them. We thank you once again for this time and the freedom we have to learn in this way. And we thank you for the blessing of your word in our lives and that it uh, sustains us and helps us to grow into your, your, the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you once again in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was uh, 1919. 1919. And they had just uh, finished a, a peace uh, conference in Paris. There was trouble in certain parts of the world and they decided to have a peace conference in Paris and uh, things had just finished up and there was a contingent from the Arabian Peninsula um, which included uh, the Emir Faisal along with his staff. And after the, um, after the, the conference was complete, they decided to all travel to London and along with them uh, was a man called Lawrence of Arabia. Yes, Lawrence of Arabia, the, the, the fellow who was played by Peter O'Toole um, in that movie. Anyway, so they all went and uh, travelled to London and they stayed at the Ritz Hotel. And while they were at the Ritz Hotel, these people from uh, the, the, uh, the Arabian Peninsula there saw some things that, w- that were very interesting to them. They were, they were amazed at what this hotel had inside its rooms. Most intriguing to them was or were the what we would call taps or some people call faucets um, with hot and cold running water. And the fact that you could actually just turn a tap and cold water would come out and turn another tap and hot water would come out. They thought that was an absolutely amazing thing. It seemed like magic to them. They were used to actually bringing their water up from wells and carrying them around in pots to where they needed them. So they thought to themselves, wow, mate, this is an amazing thing. These people just have these special taps and you just turn it and water magically comes out in your room, wherever you are. So these men thought that it would be a good idea to remove the taps and to bring them back home to them in, a, in Arabia. Because, hey, if it works here, it's going to work there as well. And if we, if we have those taps, we can have water anywhere we like, which is an amazing thing. What a plan. What they didn't understand and what you all probably understand quite well, because you're used to a thing called plumbing, probably, when it breaks down, um, is how plumbing worked in the hotel. Maybe the Ritz in those days was quite the advanced um, uh, building, um, but they didn't understand how the plumbing necessarily worked, how the water supplies worked in the country, how the infrastructure to get the water there to the hotel in the first place worked, and how water pressure was, uh, was required to, uh, to bring that, that water to their, uh, to their rooms. Their lack of knowledge led them to wrong conclusions. I mean, they appreciated the, the water, they had the water, but their lack of knowledge caused them to fill in the gaps and come to wrong conclusions. But if they had obtained all the knowledge of how water can be stored in, in reservoirs and dams and then transported via, via pipes and aqueducts and all the planning and that involved, that's involved to apply that knowledge to build infrastructure and buildings 
and finally all the work that, and the materials that was necessary to create all those things that provided um, the, the, that particular service um, uh, with the luxury of having hot and cold running water, it would have changed their perspective completely. They would have had a much greater appreciation of how things worked and more importantly, they would have had the truth. But people do these sorts of things all the time. People often have a simplistic way of filling in the gaps when they don't really understand something. But when they actually understand how something works or the details about something, they actually gain a proper perspective and a better appreciation of it. Over the next three weeks, maybe four, you know how I am, I'd like to take you on a journey of discovery to better understand and appreciate the most important topic of any other topic, of all topics, the most important topic in the, in the whole universe, and that topic is God. During last week's Wednesday evening devotion, I chose to share a devotion on the Trinity, the teaching that God exists eternally as three persons, but one God. I felt that it would be a benefit if we had a series of sermons around this topic, as it would give us a firm understanding about one of the most important doctrines, which is God. In a better understanding of God gives us a better appreciation about him and allows us to worship him more fully. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4, verse 23. The Lord says there, in John chapter 4, verse 23, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, there's a whole lot of people that get excited about worshipping God, but don't necessarily have the truth around that. There are some people that have the truth that don't necessarily worship him in spirit either. But it's important for us, if we are the children of God, to worship him rightly is to understand him more. A right understanding of God is essential if we want to worship God properly. A wrong notion of God means that we will fall short of this command by Jesus Christ. And just like trying to understand anything of importance, we need to go to where the authority on that subject is. And I'll explain to you what I mean. If you want to learn computers, well, you're going to go to a source that is authoritative about computers, maybe a latest textbook. You don't want to learn computers from a textbook from the 1960s, do you? Or the 1980s. You want to learn from an authoritative text from today. Or you may do a course, which is the latest course, which is authoritative, which means it has the right information, the latest information. If you want to become a doctor, you're not going to become a doctor by buying one of those books, Doctors for Dummies. No, you'll have to be a doctor. You need to go to a registered university, which has the latest information about what doctors do. And you'll be learning from authoritative texts that teach about medicine. If you want to learn art, you'll go to an art school or you may learn from an artist, someone who's already um, uh, learned that and is experienced in that. But if you want to learn about God, there's only one resource to go to. The only authoritative book in the world in order to understand the truth about God is, and you guys know it, the Bible. No other book reveals the true nature of God as this book does, because it is this one textbook that God has given himself and he's provided it to mankind to be a revelation about himself. You see, the Bible is really a book about God. You might look at it and, you might look at it and say, hang on a sec, but there's all these other things. Now, what about all the people? And one of them? Yes, yes. But God is the major character of the book. From the very beginning, how does it start? It says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. God comes up in the first few words. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The whole book is about God. The Bible is not about angels. It's not about creation, not even about man, even though we love to be in the center of things. 
We are just characters in this book. And this book reveals the true nature of the one true God. This book is about him, how wonderful he is, his character, his nature, and the way he's interacted with man. The part of this beauty about God and wonder about God is that he has revealed himself to us as this being, that he exists in three eternal persons, unlimited in every aspect, synergized though together and perfectly represented in one being, one nature, one identity, one almighty and eternal God. Within the triune nature of God, we will better understand his other attributes. The more we understand how God works and, 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 and what he is and who he is, the better we're able to understand his other characteristics, his other uh, um, uh, natures or, or his other uh, attributes. And the way, and it explains better the way he interacts with man and the world throughout all of history. Understand his eternal character, which is in, includes things such as love, mercy, grace, patience, holiness. Just to give you a, a brief touch of this at the moment, the prophet Isaiah, uh, in chapter 6 of his own book that he wrote, which God asked him to write down, um, has a vision of God sitting upon a throne in heaven. And God is in that, in that image that he saw, surrounded by seraphims. And these are a type of angel around that throne whose job it is to worship God. And when Isaiah saw these seraphims, he said in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, he says, One cried unto another. So they were, they were calling out to each other, okay, and repeating this over and over, and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I want you to pay attention to how many times they say holy. He is thrice holy, three times holy. What's interesting is much later on, at least some seven to eight hundred years, if not more, later, the Apostle John saw a vision of the same thing. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Because the Apostle John sees something very interesting as well. He sees the seraphims, which he calls beasts, because they had heads that looked like animals, and he couldn't describe them completely. But in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, what were they doing? It says they were saying, holy, holy. Holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. So they've, for 800 years, they're still calling out the same thing. You are holy, holy, holy. Every time, three times, for all, the, all those years, they were calling out the same thing. But did you notice something different at the end? Now they're saying, which was and is, and is to come. Why did they add that now? Well, I'll tell you why they added that now. Because Jesus had been to the earth, and he was now ascended back to heaven, and was sitting, the Bible tells us, at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible tells us that one day, this Son of God will come back to the earth the same way he left, which is he just went up. The Bible says one day he's going to come down. Who did the angel say was coming? Notice it says, which was and is and is to come. Who's coming? They say the Lord God Almighty is coming. Genesis starts with in the beginning God. Now go to the end of your Bible. Go right to the end, because the angel were calling out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Now go to Revelation chapter 22, verse 20 to 21, which are the, last, the very last two verses of the Bible. And it says there, this is the end of the Bible. 
He which testifies of these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Hang on a sec. The angels were calling out, Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And in the end of the Bible, Jesus says, Surely I come quickly. Who's coming? The Almighty God. Who's coming? The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. For the Bible to be true, and in our church, we believe the Bible is always consistently and perfectly true. It never ever contradicts itself. It never makes a mistake. Every word in it was written for a specific purpose and is in exactly the right place. And this is true for this as well. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God, and ends with, surely I come quickly. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The Bible begins with God and the Bible ends with God. The Bible is a book about God. And for the Bible to be perfectly true, that means that the one who's coming is Almighty God and that Jesus Christ and Almighty God are the same thing. There are hundreds of examples like this spread throughout the Bible, which reveals his incredible nature. And my hope is that in the coming weeks, we will grow to know the nature of God better and how we have been called to worship him, glorify him in spirit and in truth. Turn with me to Second Peter, because the Apostle Peter puts it in this specific way. And we'll look at a couple of verses from, uh, from Peter. He says in 2 Peter chapter, this is how he opens up uh, his, his letter, his second letter. And then I'm going to read a passage from his first letter, which is from the beginning again. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God, and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3 says, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has, has, hath called us to glory and virtue. Righteousness, the Apostle Peter says, not only comes from God, comes from our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are multiplied to us through the knowledge of God and of Jesus the Lord. That knowledge comes from his word. And it's because of this word and the work of the Holy Spirit within us to teach us this word that Peter confidently says in verse 3 that we've been given all things that pertain to life, that's getting eternal life and living for God, and godliness, being like him. And that is obtained through the knowledge of him. So the more we come to know God, the more we come into a deeper relationship with God, the more we understand about God and allow that to penetrate our souls and our minds and our spirits, we grow in grace through him. We grow in that grace and life. Peter says, in a, it says it in a similar way in his first epistles introduction. Have a look at the look for the Trinity in the second verse of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. So just go back a little bit in your Bibles to the letter just before the one you just read. Go to the beginning of it, and I want you to have a bit of a look if you see the Trinity here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says, We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Did you see it? There's God the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ. Here is, in one verse, the Trinity in action. All were involved 
All are involved. All are participating in our salvation. Each one of them is working and has worked and has, and has participated in our salvation. Each and every one of you that has put your faith in Jesus Christ has had God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit working to save you for all of eternity. The elect here are all those who are eternally saved in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. So that's just a taste of where what we see the Trinity in the Trinity in the Bible. We see that God the Father had foreknowledge. We are sanctified sanctified through the Spirit, and that's a bit like um, uh, our brother Alan was sharing this morning with the children's message that we have been sealed. Sanctification is the is the job of setting apart and pulling away and making special for for something. Okay. And that's what the Spirit does. And we have done that by obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, by obeying his teaching, by coming to him and being sprinkled by his blood and being cleansed of all of our sin. Each one of the Trinity is involved in our salvation. So let's go. Let's, let's go to some definition now. Let's begin with a definition by a fellow called Athanasius. Athanasius was an early Christian leader around the 300s. Um, who was living in Alexandria, and there was a um, there was a a particular teaching that was floating around where people started saying, "Well, no, no, Jesus can't be God, and the Holy Spirit isn't really God as well. He's just some sort of a force or some or something like that." And so, what he tried to do was was define or put in in words what the Bible taught about the Trinity in a creed. You see, creeds were quite popular in the early uh, days, especially in the early hundreds, because many Christians didn't have their own copy of the Bible. We're blessed in our day because we have things called printers. And printers can churn out plenty of books in a very short amount of time. Bibles can be printed fairly cheaply. I mean, we can buy Bibles for about 5 or $6, you know what I mean, and, and have those in our hands. But in those days, every Bible had to be copied by hand not only was copying a very long and laborious process so to get a bible in your hand took a lot of effort almost a year's worth of work probably but it would have cost an enormous amount of money no matter how much do you pay someone to copy down the entire bible for you how, how much is a, is a year's wages worth the other thing that was expensive was paper paper was all made manually it had to be made bit by bit and piece by piece and it was a very long and laborious process. Today, paper is just churned out by machines, sheet after sheet after sheet, thousands and thousands of reams each and every minute. So to have a Bible in those days was pretty hard to get. But what they did is often they would create creeds. And so you may have heard some of those creeds. Um, there's the Apostles' Creed and there's other creeds, but they were put in a way that was something you could memorize and, and things that you could actually uh, understand quite quickly and have carry around with you anywhere you went. So a lot of stuff was memorized in the early days because they didn't have Bibles available to all of them. But the Athanasian Creed was a creed that was created by this particular person because he tried to uh, put down in words what this teaching about the Trinity was. And he says this, now listen carefully to me, um, because it's, it's quite long, but I'll try to read it slowly so you understand it. And next week I'll actually have, I'll put it up again and we'll read it again, but I'll, um, I'll, I'll go through it slowly just for the moment. He says in his creed, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Neither confounding, now the word confounding means, means mixing up or confusing the persons, nor dividing the substance. Dividing the substance, the substance is the, the very nature of God. So they all have exactly the same nature. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son. And such is the Holy Ghost, the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Ghost incomprehensible, 
the Father, eternal, the Son, eternal, and the Holy Ghost, eternal. And yet, they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also, there are not three incomprehensibles, nor three uncreated, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And yet, they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet, they are not three gods, but one God. Now, what all those words are trying to say, but they're trying to close every loophole that someone may have or confusion that may come or questions that may arise, is that the God we know, or that has revealed himself in the Old Testament as, as Jehovah, okay, um, has existed forever and ever and ever, has existed eternally as three persons. Each of these three is eternal, almighty, incomprehensible, which means you can't fully understand them, uncreated and infinite. These three are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. These three exist, but exist as one God. Now, understanding the Trinity is akin to understanding the eternal nature of God. How do we understand eternity? Well, we can't. It's not something that our finite minds can actually grasp. We can't really do it. We accept it by faith because God tells us that he is eternal. I can't understand going back how eternity works. I can't even comprehend how eternity going forward works, yet let alone going back and forth at the same time. But the, God says that he is eternal. I can't understand it. I accept it by, by faith. It's like understanding the omnipotence of God. That means that he is unlimited in his power. He is unlimited, which means it doesn't run out. Now, I don't have that concept in my head. I can believe it by faith, but my only concepts of, of stored energy are like a battery. And the best batteries always run out. So it's a bit like understanding that. We really can't understand how God's unlimited power works. We can look up, the Bible says, and the, the, the heavens declare the glory of God and, 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 and manifest his, his handiwork. Well, that's right, because the, the, everything I see around me is created by God. And we see the universe, and the, and the more we understand about the universe, we understand how big it actually is, which shows us how unbelievably powerful God is. But can I understand that power? No. I just simply accept it by faith. The same goes to his omnipresence. That means that he is everywhere, everywhere, always in the same way, at every moment. He is everywhere. Can I understand that? Well, I can't because I don't understand the concept of a person being everywhere all at the same time and being present in all locations. But I accept it by faith because God says he is everywhere. And so it goes for every attribute of God. Athanasius recognized this when he included in his statement that God is incomprehensible. Because not only is God incomprehensible in his totality, but when you start to understand each factor of God, each one of them is incomprehensible. In as much as an ant can understand how a computer works, we can understand God. We can grasp the eternal, the omnipotent, the omniscient, and the very nature of God. Yet God has revealed himself. So what we do is even with our finite minds, we receive those things by faith. We believe them by faith because God says, this is who I am. King David actually came up with the same struggle. Turn with me to, to Psalm 139 verse 1. Turn with me to Psalm 139, and we'll read from verses 1 to 10. Now, Psalm 30, 139 is an extraordinary psalm. If you want to um, uh, worship God, if you want to be in awe of who he is, this is 
um, the conclusion that King David came up with. And when he when he when I read Psalm one thirty nine, it causes me to worship God and to um, to meditate on how wonderful he actually is. But listen to um, King David's conclusions here. Psalm one thirty nine one says to the chief musician, a psalm of David, <clears throat> O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. I'll just stop there, but I'd encourage you to read the rest of the psalm in your own time and listen to the awe that's inspired in David when he thinks about how God knows him. When David contemplates the knowledge and the presence of God, he concludes that such knowledge is too wonderful for him. It's high. He can't attain unto it. I can't reach it, God. When I think about how much you know about me and how, and how you're everywhere at the same time, I can't reach it. And he, later on, he also speaks about the sum of God's thoughts to him. In other words, he concludes that God has so many thoughts and thinks knows so many things about him that they're not countable. They're like the sand of the sea on every shore. How can, we, how can God even see in the darkness, he says? Yet you may have heard some who don't believe the Trinity argue something like this. It can't be true because it's too difficult to understand. I've heard that argument more than once. It's made by certain people and certain groups that don't believe in the Trinity, even though the Bible thoroughly reveals it. And they say it can't be true because they say it's too difficult to understand. How can I believe that three God exists as three persons and yet be one God? Um, too difficult to understand? No kidding. What do you understand about God? What have you thoroughly grasped about God? The foolishness of arguing that the Trinity is too hard to understand is really foolishness. What is it that we do understand? The same people that argue that the Trinity cannot be true because we can't comprehend it, are the same people who have no problem, apparently, understanding the eternal and infinite aspects of God, as if they are perfectly fine to digest. You may hear this argument from cults. Some of these cults are Jehovah's Witnesses, Christadelphians, the Mormons, Christian Science, Armstrongism, the Unification Church, Oneness Pentecostals, and... The, uh, the scourge of our day, Scientology. They don't believe in a trinity. They say that, that God can't exist as a trinity. But the more you think about that argument, the more that argument's a non-starter. Why? Because we don't properly understand the vast majority of things in life, let alone God himself. Yet we accept them by faith or by simply not even thinking about them at all. Let me just give you one example. Water. At the moment, while I'm sharing this message with you, I have a glass of water here on my desk. I drink this water. I am made up of this water. I bathe in this water. I wash my car with this water. I am surrounded by water. And I have no problems um, using it, even though... I may not understand it fully. Do I actually understand water? Do I comprehend it? 
Um, well, we might experience water through our senses. I know its taste. I know its texture. Some of us may even know its chemical formula, H2O. But do we truly understand how those two hydrogen atoms bond together with an oxygen atom to create this amazing thing that gives us life? Probably not. I mean, oxygen, you all know, is a gas. We breathe it in. It's in the air. And hydrogen is a gas as well. People fill up their, their you can fill up a hydrogen balloon and, and, and it will float upwards. Hydrogen is used for other things, but it's a gas. But when these two things come together in a very special combination of one oxygen atom and two hydrogen atoms, they create a liquid that allows us to exist. We call that liquid water. In fact, all life needs water to live. Now, not to be cheeky, but water is made up of three and is yet one. One thing, but I digress. Do we understand the chemical bonds of water and the atoms that make it up? I suspect not. For the vast majority of us, yet we're more than happy to drink and use and accept that water exists. Can we, how can we, uh, we struggle. How can we understand water and how can we understand even its chemical nature when we struggle to comprehend the quantum nature of the atoms themselves, let alone how they stick together with bonds? You see, some of you who have done some extra science in your days and in your studies understand that each atom, that's the oxygen and the hydrogen, are made up of protons, neutrons and electrons. And the electrons apparently spit around and the protons and neutrons are there in the middle in various combinations. And when you understand that these particular little things and how they fit together to make one atom, when you understand how they work, you realize that the world is a very strange place indeed. Each of these subatomic particles, your atoms and your, um, your protons, neutrons and electrons, are also made up of another three families of matter. So get, let me explain this to you. The water that you have is made up of three atoms joined together to create one product. Those atoms, each one of them, are made up of three different types of, of uh, subatomic particles called protons, neutrons and electrons. Those are each made up of three different types of particles or families of matter called fermions. Fermions consist of quarks and leptons, which are themselves divided into different types again. And there may be even smaller things the more they dig down that these things are made up of. That's not counting even the forces that are involved to keep all these things humming along together and keep them working together. So how far have you come to understanding how water is? As far as I have, probably. Not very. We can memorize various things about water. Maybe you've memorized the chemical formula. Maybe you've understood how many protons and electrons and neutrons there are in those atoms. Maybe you've even you can even memorize how many uh, fermions there are in each of those particular subatomic particles. But do you really understand them? The answer would be no. We can memorize certain things. We can receive things by faith. But there are certain things in life, in fact, the majority of things in life, we just don't properly understand. But that's okay. Because... We've called to live by faith. And people live by faith regardless of whether they believe in God or whether they even don't. Many things are received simply by faith. If someone argues to you that the Trinity is too hard to understand, therefore it can't be true, well, if you can't understand something as simple as water, how are you expected to understand the eternal nature of the living God who is infinite in every way. Lots of things are difficult to understand, yet firmly believed by people every day of their lives. So don't let someone tell you that 
the Trinity doesn't exist because it's too hard to understand. Um, the, the Trinity is clearly taught in the Bible. But there are some people that have come up with some interesting um, illustrations. And um, when I say illustrations, I'm speaking of illustration as uh, our brother pa- Alan Parry shares with the children on a, Sunday mo- on a Sunday morning. And they're quite effective at helping the mind to grasp how things work. Now, some people have come up with certain um, things and illustrations on how the Trinity actually works. But let me be clear with you, all of them fall short. None of them is adequate to explain God because we're using finite things, trying to understand them with a finite mind, but we're talking about infinite things with an infinite mind. But let's, let, let me share a few of them with you. Some people use an egg to describe the Trinity. An egg is an egg. It has three main parts to it. It has a yolk, it has the white, and it has a shell. So it's one egg. Each of those things are egg by definition, but they are three distinguishable things. They make up one egg, but yet there are three. You get the picture. Water, once again, is, is, is another example of a trinity. And I suspect God's given us water as a wonderful illustration of himself. Apart from water being made up of three atoms to make one molecule that exists perfectly balanced, that is able to give us life, water is, in another aspect, an example of a trinity because water exists in three different states. As I drink this water this morning, thank you, that was my opportunity there, it is a liquid. It moves around. Okay? It moves around, it's liquid, and it sinks to the bottom of a glass. But water can also exist as a solid. If I bring the temperature of the, uh, of the air around this, this liquid, around water, to less than zero, or zero, it freezes to a solid block. If I raise the temperature to 100 degrees or above, guess what? It turns into a gas. So, li- so water um, exists in three different ways, yet is always water. It can exist as a solid, ice, a liquid, water, and gas, or, a, or what we call steam or vapor. But it's always just water. Think about the clouds in the sky. That's water. The oceans are water. The ice that you have in your fridge is just water, yet exists in three different forms. That is an interesting il- illustration of Trinity. In fact, there's a specific uh, thing that do in science, in chemistry, where water can exist in the same place. If you have the pressure right and the temperature right, it can exist as a solid, a liquid, and a gas, and you can actually see that all in one little place. God, in the same way, is always the same. In other words, it's always God, but it can exist in three different Forms and shows himself in three different ways, um, but the the difference is where this falls short is that short is that the that God are three is three different persons, not just three different states. And some people use the electric light bulb as a good example. A light bulb gives light, but it's the electricity running through a filament which creates heat that gives the light. So there's light, there's heat, and there's electricity. <clears throat> the reason that all our examples always fall short is because God, the God that we serve, is absolutely unique. There is no one and nothing like him at all to which we really can compare him. Everything is really just a very dim reflection of who he is, um, which is why God forbade the making of idols. You see, people love to get an image in their head to try to help them understand. So some people thought that it would be a good idea to make a statue of God or an image of God so they could focus their attention on that thing. But God says, I don't want you making statues of me. In fact, he says, I don't want you to making statues of anything in heaven, on earth or under the earth. And I don't want you bowing down or worshipping those things because every image you make of God is always not God. It always falls short, which means it's not him you're actually worshipping. 
you're worshipping something you've made up in your own mind. Everything will fail like that. So God says, I don't want you to make any idol of me or anything that represents me and to bow down to that thing. We serve a, an absolutely unique God. And he reminds us of this often in the Bible. There is no one like him. Which is how I'd like to conclude the message this morning. That there is only one true God. And how he has revealed himself in the Bible is what we should be prepared to believe, despite how difficult or easy it is. We serve an awesome God. A God that we can't even compare everything we see around us to. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44 verse 7 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 44 verse 7. It tells us there, I'll just give you a moment to turn with your Bibles there. I shared this with, with the group on Wednesday evening, and I think it's an absolutely awesome verse. In Isaiah 44, 7, God says, And who, as I, shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me? Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show them show unto them. In other words, God no, God declares it before it actually happens. What type of who can do that? Okay. Verse 8 says, Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Now, I love these verses because God is saying he knows the end from the beginning and there is no one else who, who does that. So don't ever think that the devil knows what's coming tomorrow. He may try and guess what's coming tomorrow, but he doesn't know what's coming tomorrow. The only one who can declare what's coming tomorrow beforehand is God. And that is proven over and over again in the Bible. His word. That's how we know it's come from him. Because only he can actually do that. So God says, don't worry about, can, he says, what other gods can do this? Can anyone else do this? He says, no. Because you know what? There are, they are no gods at all. In fact, God says, don't be afraid of them. You don't need to be afraid of any other god. You don't need to be afraid of any devil or any witch or anything. That may try to come against you. He goes, I know what's coming tomorrow. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid of any of them because none of them are actually gods. They don't know the future. They don't make the future. I make the future. So God says, don't be afraid of them and don't be afraid of the future. Because there's no other God like him. In fact, he says, and I love the way he finishes this because the God we serve has always said from the beginning, he doesn't know and recognize any other God. He says, I don't know. I don't recognize them. Now imagine this. I mean, this was written, these words were, were written hundreds and hundreds, thousands of thousands of years ago here. And from the very beginning, God has never recognized any other or the existence of any other God. So imagine the pantheon of gods over the ages. The gods of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. If you know anything, these people had huge amounts of gods. They had gods for the sun and gods for the water and gods for the air and gods for the night and the day. Gods of the earth and gods of, the, of all different things. They worshipped a pantheon of gods. Okay, and, and God says, I don't recognize them. Are they gods? I don't know. He says, they're all pretend gods. I don't know any of them. I don't recognize any of them. I haven't met any of them. So don't be afraid of them, nor of the future. Because I know the future. Because I am the Savior. And no one else can save you but me. Now turn with me, go back a bit to Isaiah chapter 43 verse 10, which is the original passage we read this morning. Because I want to close with this today. <clears throat> God says in Isaiah 43.10, ye, ye are my witnesses. 
saith the Lord, which means we're the ones who are meant to represent and tell other people about God. Okay? And my servant whom I have chosen, that's Jesus Christ, his son, that ye may know and believe me. God wants us to know him. God wants us to believe in him and understand that I am he. Well, who, who are you? Before me, there was no God formed. Neither shall there be after me. There was none before him. There's not going to be any after him. He's the only one. Verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord. That word Lord is in capital, capital letters because that's his name. Actually, they've replaced Jehovah with Lord um, because out of reverence for that name. I, even I, am Jehovah. And beside me, there is no saviour. I have declared and I have saved and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. God wants to be known. As we um, proceed through these coming weeks, my prayer will be that if you don't know this God, if you haven't bowed the knee to this God, if you don't recognize this God yet, that you will come to know him in a personal way and that you will be fear free and that you will understand that this God is the only God. He does not recognize any other God from any other people or race, religion or anything else. He says, I am God. I know the future. There is no need to fear if you're with me and I save you. There is no other savior. Which brings me to this point. The Bible calls Jesus Christ the savior of the world. God revealed himself through his son and he sent his son into this world to save sinners like us. The Bible says that every person has fallen short of the glory of God. Every person has sinned in their life and needs to be saved. How are you saved? You come to be saved by believing in God and putting your faith in him. So God revealed himself through his son Jesus who died on the cross for us. He paid the penalty of our sins. And the Bible tells us, as we have seen already, that that blood that he shed on that cross cleanses us from every sin and stain if we would simply trust and believe in him because Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the almighty God he is the son of God and he came into this world to save you and me if you would turn to Jesus today you will be saved and there is no need to fear tomorrow or anything else not even death can separate you from him because he will always be with you so my prayer for you today is that you would come to know jesus as your lord and your savior and for those of you who do know him already my prayer for the coming weeks will be that you grow to know him more deeply and that you would grow to appreciate him even more because we serve an absolutely unique and awesome god god bless you all I hope you have a wonderful week.